audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right. Well, welcome to session 12 of our series on Luke Acts. Today, we're going to be diving into Luke chapter 19, talking about the triumphal entry, uh, Yeshua's uh, entrance into Jerusalem, and we'll uh, look at some things related to that. So before we go there, I want us to uh, go back to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Actually, sorry, we're going to go to Ezekiel. Not sure why he said Leviticus. Um, If you have your Bible, you can follow along or you can uh, follow along on the screen. Let's take a look here. Okay, so in Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, we'll look first at Ezekiel 10, 18, and then Ezekiel 11. Uh, This is, if you have... uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Ezekiel chapter one, where he has this vision of uh, these, this divine chariot sort of contraption. Uh, He sees these angels and these wheels and there's wheels within wheels and these different layers of glory that he perceives. And then this uh, above it all is this amazing figure seated on this throne. and, And so this whole, thing represents God's God's presence, right? God's uh, divine presence that filled the temple. And when we get to Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, we have uh, an alarming vision. Uh, Ezekiel, well, starting in verse 8, and in chapter 8 and chapter 9, uh, Ezekiel gets swept away to the city of Jerusalem in, in the spirit, and he sees all these abominations that are being done in the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. And he has this vision where he sees the same glory of the Lord that he saw back in chapter one. This time it is departing from the temple. And it says in Ezekiel ten eighteen, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And then there's, by the time we get to chapter 11, then it talks about how they lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. The glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. What's being depicted in these verses is God's protective presence leaving the temple. And there's a couple uh implications of that but the most obvious implication is that by god leaving uh it leaves the city vulnerable to destruction so this happens just before the destruction of the temple in 586 bce by the babylonians god's glory leaves his house so this is one of the things that's depicted uh that happens as a just prior to the destruction of the temple the first time. One of the expectations for the messianic kingdom is the return of the Lord to Zion. So we see that, for example, in the book of Isaiah. 
the voice of your watchmen. They lift their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So this theme of God's presence returning to Zion uh, is, is one of these amazing things that that is an expectation for the final restoration for the messianic kingdom god will return and dwell with his people as he promised and this is also vividly portrayed in ezekiel when you get to the finer final chapters of ezekiel ezekiel describes this futuristic temple and uh in the midst of this description he talks about how he went to the gate facing east. This is in Ezekiel 43, starting in verse 1. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, just like the vision I had seen by the Hebar Canal. And I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we see the glory of the Lord departs from the temple to the east, to the Mount of Olives. And then when the glory of the Lord comes back, it comes back the same way that it departed, right? Comes back from the east, from the Mount of Olives, back into the city of Jerusalem. All right. So for the past uh, four sessions of our series, we've been focusing on the stories in Luke that take place during Yeshua's long final journey to Jerusalem. If you recall, Yeshua started heading to Jerusalem back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This journey occupies nearly 10 chapters of Luke's gospel. Uh, and today we'll read about when Yeshua finally arrives in chapter 19. I want to suggest that Luke intends us to see in Yeshua's journey to Jerusalem an echo of the Lord's return to Zion. Let's take a closer look at that. If uh, let's let's go to Luke 13. Uh, I know we're trying to get to Luke 19, but there's uh, this is a passage we skipped over before that I think is important. Uh, could I get a volunteer? to read Luke 13, 31 to 35. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. So this is uh, 
this is a very significant passage uh, related to a lot of the things we're going to be looking at today. There is, um, so this uh, begins with, you know, the Pharisees are talking about how, you know, Herod's trying to kill you. And he makes this, this remark, uh, I'm not, it's, I'm not going to die because it's impossible for a person to, uh, that a prophet should be killed anywhere but in Jerusalem. And of course, there's some, some irony in that statement. Um, and then he goes on to uh, this, this statement, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which, by the way, also appears in the Gospel of Matthew. This, this first part here, uh, verses 31 to 33, are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and it, it's interesting, there's a rather positive portrayal of the Pharisees here, right? In, in Matthew, um, uh, Matthew doesn't have this first part, but Matthew has uh, this uh, second part, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this, this lament over Jerusalem. So there's uh, several things we should look at here. He talks about you know, how often I wanted to gather you together, your children together. Um, and then, so so what's this gathering together talking about? Well, I think this is this is referring to the final ingathering of the people of Israel that's talked about often in the prophets. And then he says, "Behold, your house is forsaken." Uh, the house here, I'm going to suggest, is a reference to to the temple. Uh, or, or possibly the city of Jerusalem, but I think in context, you know, they're, the two maybe are, are somewhat interchangeable here, uh, but uh, it makes sense that this is, this is the house, uh, the, this house is the temple. Uh, and it, I think this alludes to the departure of God's presence from the temple uh, in Ezekiel. Now, I want us to notice some interesting differences with uh with the text in Matthew. If you go to, uh, it's at the end of Matthew chapter 23. So in Matthew 23, Yeshua, um, he declares all these woes against the Pharisees. And then he gets to the end and he has this, this statement, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, it's very similar to what we see in the book of Luke. But there's a very interesting difference about the placement in the gospel. In Matthew, this occurs after the triumphal entry. It occurs after Yeshua has been teaching in the temple in Jerusalem for uh, several days, and just before he has his final Passover. It, in fact, it leads into Matthew 24, uh, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, or this eschatological discourse where Yeshua predicts the destruction of the temple. Uh, so so this, this statement, um, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, we have an event in the Gospels where the people say that, right? That's at the triumphal entry. When Yeshua makes his entrance into Jerusalem, all the people are proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll see that in, in Luke chapter 19 in a moment. So in Matthew's, in the context of Matthew's gospel, that's already happened. 
and Yeshua says, you will not see me again. In, in, in Luke, it doesn't have the word again. In Luke, it just says, you will not see me because it's before, right? Here, here, Matthew says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is implying that the triumphal entry is going to happen again, right? That, that what happened uh, on the day when all Israel recognizes Yeshua as the Messiah, he will once again enter Jerusalem and will finally be acclaimed as king by all the Jewish people. Uh, as uh, Dave, D Dale Allison puts it, the, tri uh, the actually, no, sorry, I have my quote wrong. D uh, <laughs> Dale Allison says, the triumphal entry was a prophetic symbolic act anticipating Yeshua's future coming to the city in glory and victory. I'll get to the other Dale Allison quote in just a minute. So in Matthew, the reference to Jerusalem's unwillingness, if we go back to this, right, he says, uh, I've longed to gather you, uh, but you were not willing. You know, that, that might be a glimpse back to what has just happened in the Gospel of Matthew, right? The Jewish leaders rejected him. Uh, in his teaching at the temple, they're trying to trap him, and they plot to kill him. And so there's this rejection that he faces by the temple authorities, right? In Luke, the saying occurs much earlier in the gospel. It occurs before the triumphal entry. It occurs before Yeshua has been to Jerusalem and has faced this reject rejection from the Jewish leaders. So it raises a couple questions. When, when was it that Yeshua wanted to gather the children together? And, and when were they unwilling? Uh, because at least in terms of Luke's narrative, that hasn't really happened yet. I think that Luke wants us to see this as a reference to God's dealing with Jerusalem throughout its history, right? This long history of, of, of God's dealings with Jerusalem. When he says, you will not see me until, this is talking about God's divine presence um, returning to Jerusalem, right? God's presence won't come back to Jerusalem until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, so that presence that departed just before the Babylonian captivity, which was promised to return, uh, this, this will come with the people accepting Messiah, right? So this means that, you know, in, in the context of Luke, as we're looking forward, you know, we're going to get to, in chapter 19, an event where the people acclaim him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're set up to, to expect that to be the fulfillment of this. Um, but as we're going to see, that event does not completely fulfill this expectation. I'll get back to that in a moment. So the departure of God's presence from Jerusalem is what leaves the city vulnerable to its enemies. That's why the Babylonians were able to destroy the city back in 586 BCE. And this also explains why the Romans will be able to destroy the city in 70 CE. Uh, your house is forsaken, meaning that God's presence has left, right? So this passage uh, alludes to the departure of God's presence from Jerusalem, well, it also alludes to the destruction of the city left vulnerable after God's departure. But 
There's also a glimmer of hope put in this, that one day God's presence will return to the city. Uh, you will see me again when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's where we get the quote from Dale Allison. The date of the redemption is contingent upon Israel's acceptance of the person and work of Jesus. Uh, that's the way he puts it. So this, this saying, until you say, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that means that Israel's acceptance of Yeshua will be the catalyst for the final redemption. Okay, let's take a look at how this pans out in Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to ask for another volunteer. Uh, we're going to read Luke 19. Let's read verses 28 to 40. And after he had said these things, he was going ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage in Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was going, and as, and as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for all the miracles which he, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Great, oh, thank you. Oh, uh, I guess to 40, is it? Sorry. Uh, sure, yeah, that'd be great. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said, uh, said to him, Teacher, rebuked our disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. Okay, so... Um, a couple things. First of all, uh, notice that Yeshua enters the city from the Mount of Olives. And this mimics or mirrors what we saw in Ezekiel, right? The glory departs to the Mount of Olives, then it comes back into the temple from the Mount of Olives. So this event, I think Luke is setting this up to for us to see an echo of that. This symbolizes God's presence returning to the temple. Uh, but at the same time, there's something a bit anticlimactic about this event. Uh, let's take a look at the, the parallels here. So we're going to look at the way this is told in um, Luke compared to the way it's told in Matthew and Mark. Um, all right, so in Matthew... 
uh, it talks about how uh, they, you know, the disciples went and they got the donkey and then the crowd was spreading their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In, in Mark, uh, it it's, uh, doesn't exactly say who it is. It just says those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna. Um, so in Matthew, it calls it crowds. Mark, it doesn't really call them anything. It's just the people in front and the people behind. Uh, so it's not exactly clear who are these people who are shouting this, right? Are we witnessing uh, the Jewish people all as a whole accepting Yeshua as king? Or is this a select few? Uh, from Matthew and Mark, we kind of, we're not exactly sure, but we kind of get the impression this is probably the pilgrims who went, who were going to the temple with Yeshua. Uh, maybe they knew him, maybe they didn't, but at this time they're all acknowledging him uh, as king, apparently. Uh, we might assume that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are not included in this crowd. Well, in in Luke, Luke clarifies for us who exactly it was that was making these proclamations. Uh, it says, as he was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what are the religious establishment doing? They're trying to silence them. They're telling Yeshua to rebuke his disciples, to rebuke all those people who are shouting these things. So uh, the way Luke sets it up for us, this is not a grand welcome that the city of Jerusalem is putting on for him by any means. Uh, those who are acclaiming him as king are those who are already his followers prior to this. If you recall, Luke uh, gives us a picture that we wouldn't necessarily get from the other synoptics, that Yeshua had a lot more disciples than just the 12, right? At one point in Luke, Yeshua sends out 70 or 72 disciples. So the point is that uh, in Luke's version of this event, he makes it clear that it's only his disciples who acclaim him. Uh, here's a quote from Steve Smith. He says, it is only the followers of Jesus who welcome him, not the city. Far from being a triumphal entry, as the event is commonly understood, it is a non-triumphal entry. In other words, this is kind of the way Luke frames it. This is, this is an anticlimactic reception that Yeshua receives, right? We have this whole theme building, you know, what we saw back in chapter 13 of expecting the people to welcome him saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and that this would signal the Lord's return to Zion and Yeshua is walking this out and fulfilling this and yet the response is not there. The people do not respond to who he is and to the message that he brings. What this means is that this is what happens in Luke 19 is merely a prophetic foreshadowing of a future event of a future event. The return of the Lord to Zion will be fulfilled at Yeshua's return. And what we see here is just a prefigure of that. I think this becomes clear when we get to the next verses in Luke 19, verses 41 to 45. 
Uh, I'll just read these verses here quick. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what we get here is, you know, this, this, what's supposed to be this climax of Yeshua being acclaimed as king, Yeshua recognizes it for what it is. It is not the reception that would bring, that would bring peace. And instead, he offers this prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Uh, here's a quote from Mark Kinzer about that, about this passage. He says, here the tone of intense grief is unmistakable. Looking upon the city as he descends the Mount of Olives, Jesus weeps over it. He weeps because in one glance, he beholds two prophetic pictures, one superimposed on the other. The first is his own suffering and death, which will reveal that Jerusalem has not recognized the things that make for peace or the time of her visitation. The second, is Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of the Romans in 70 CE. So here we're supposed to be seeing the return of the Lord to Zion. And instead, I mean, if you go back to Isaiah 52, 8, the return of the Lord to Zion is supposed to be accompanied by joy, right? And here it results in weeping and in judgment. Scholars also point out that this passage echoes the song of Zechariah that we looked at back in session two. If you recall back in Luke chapter one, uh, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he utters this, this prophetic oracle, uh, this song that um, is an amazing prophecy. Let's just uh, go back to that. So this is Luke chapter one starting in verse 67. Uh, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Uh, and, and it goes on. Uh, it's a beautiful song. But there's a number of language, uh, a number of terms that Yeshua uses in, in Luke 19 that are paralleled here. So we have this term uh, visited, right? It says, uh, you did not know the time of your visitation. In Greek, it's the word episkopes, visitation. Um, in uh, here, it says, the Lord God of Israel has visited us, episkepsato. He has visited. And, and so it's the same, same root word in both places. Um, also, in, if we go down to verse 77, Zechariah says, uh, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. This word for, for knowledge is the Greek word gnosis. Um, here, it's Yeshua says twice, um, he talks about knowing. Would that you had known, it's the Greek, same root, root word, egnon. 
would that you had known uh, what would bring you peace. Uh, but he says, but you did not know, uk um, egnos, you did not know the time of your visitation. In Zechariah uh, verse 79, he talks about how God visited us, there's that word again, uh, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace, Irene is the word for peace there. Well, in Yeshua's lament, he says, uh, would that you had known the things that make for peace, for Irene, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So instead of the opening of eyes, eyes are being hidden. Instead of peace, peace is being rejected. And then finally, in Zechariah, we see twice the reference to uh, being delivered from enemies, that he, we should be saved from our enemies, verse 71. And uh, in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Well, what happens in, in uh, Luke 19? The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. It's the same Greek word in both passages. So there's all these terms that, like the, this cluster of, of, of terms that are in common between these two passages. I think Luke has this set up intentionally for us. He wants us, when we, when we read this account of Yeshua's lament over Jerusalem, we're supposed to remember and, and all these terms from from Zechariah. So in other words, the redemption of Israel in Jerusalem that the opening chapters of Luke look forward to is here being rejected, right? How do we reconcile this discrepancy? I, I think there's two there's uh, two conclusions we can uh, come to from this. on on the one hand, what Yeshua is saying here is that Israel's fate has now been sealed. Yeshua's offer of the kingdom has been rejected, and instead of receiving the kingdom, Israel will face judgment and exile. And Yeshua doesn't take that casually. He's deeply grieved by this, and he weeps over the fate of Jerusalem. But I think there's another reason why Luke has these echoes back to Zechariah's song here uh, during this, what is probably the, the most explicit prediction of the destruction of the temple, where, where it, this is where it seems like it's certain uh, this is going to happen. It's not just a warning that it might happen. This is, this is going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And I think Luke wants us to remember Zechariah's song at this moment because it's his way of signaling to us that Jerusalem's judgment is not the end of the story. The promise of restoration remains intact. All right. Um, any, before I barge ahead, <laughs> any thoughts or questions on any of this so far? Okay. Well, I want to uh, back up just a little bit because uh, what I've suggested, or at least what I just suggested there, is that in Luke 19, the fate of Jerusalem is sealed. 
but that prior to this point, that was still uncertain. Uh, go back to Luke chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9 this time. So if we go to Luke 13. So there were some present at that time who told Yeshua about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so we're not exactly sure what historical event this refers to, but obviously this is something that took place in, in the temple where people from Jews from Galilee were in the temple offering sacrifices and for whatever reason, Pilate came in and slaughtered them, right? Uh, these sorts of things happened occasionally under Roman occupation. So then Yeshua answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So again, this incident with the tower in Siloam, uh, Siloam was a district in the south of Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem. Not 100% sure what historical event that refers to, but uh, the, the point is that these are both um, incidents in which people in, in Jerusalem were killed, right? And, and Yeshua's message is that you need to repent as well. Uh, this actually rides on uh, the passage that I can't remember if we had a chance to look at the end of Luke chapter 12, but the, the topics related, uh, we won't go there this time. Uh, anyway, <laughs> if you want to on your own time, you can read the end of Luke chapter 12 and see how it connects with Luke 13. So what do these two situations, what, what, what is this talking about? Well, I think I think this is meant to be an allusion to the destruction of the temple, right? We have Galileans being slaughtered by Roman swords in the temple and Jews being killed by the fall of a building. What do both of those sound like? They both sound like the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem that will take place in 70 CE. So, when Yeshua says, you will likewise perish, some, some people try to get out of this passage the message that you have to repent uh, so that you don't go to hell when you die, so you can go to heaven when you die instead. But why would Yeshua talk about likewise perishing, right? That, that, that's not how the people that were slaughtered by Pilate perished, that, you know, that's, right? This sounds like it's talking about this worldly kind of death, like, like a impending doom hanging over the nation that's physical and political in nature, right? So I think this is, in my opinion, it's quite clear. This is talking about the, the coming, a warning about the coming destruction of the temple. But what's interesting for our sake here is that at this stage in the narrative, the, the coming destruction of the temple was not yet certain. Yeshua presents it as a very real possibility that if the people of Israel repent, 
then this destruction will not come upon them. And, and Yeshua is trying to bring the people to repentance in order to avoid that outcome. And I think that becomes clear in the parable that he proceeds to tell. Luke 13, verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Have you ever stopped to wonder what was, what was this guy doing by planting a fig tree in a vineyard? Shouldn't he be planting vines in a vineyard? Um, well, obviously, this is parabolic material. We read often in the prophets of fig, uh, fig trees, and we read often of vineyards. And these are common themes that we see in Jewish parables and rabbinic literature as well. A vineyard represents Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. Uh, you can look that up if you don't believe me. So the vineyard is Israel. What's the, what's the fig tree? Well, I think uh, given the context and what we're talking about, it's a safe guess to say that's talking about Jerusalem. So a guy had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I keep coming uh, seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered saying, sir, let it, also, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The point is that there is this judgment hanging over the city. But there's still a chance to repent. If the people would, would but repent, they could avert that coming judgment. If they would bear the fruit of repentance, bear the fruit of good deeds, then they could avert that judgment. Um, this is These are exactly the same sort of things that we see going on in the prophet Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah, let me... Find the verse. Uh, let's look at Jeremiah 7, verses 5 to 7. So Jeremiah was faced with a people who were wicked as well. And he had the unenviable task of having to predict the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and then Jeremiah, in the midst of one of his prophecies predicting the destruction of the temple, he has this uh, interesting statement. He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Ad olam. Actually, in Hebrew, it's it's even more emphatic than that. Lamin haolam, ad haolam. So, uh, I gave it to your forefathers from of old until forever. It's hard to hard to uh, render that in English, but it uses this word forever twice, pointing uh, pointing back to the distant past and pointing towards uh, you. Know, you know, the unending future. But the point here is that just like in what we saw in the Gospels, Jeremiah's prediction of the coming destruction of the temple is at this stage, at least in the book of Jeremiah, it's not certain that the nation still has a chance to repent, to amend their ways, and to uh, avert the coming judgment. And 
that's what Jeremiah is seeking to do is for the children, for the people of Israel to repent and not have to face this judgment. And that's what we see in the Gospels as well. All right, let's uh, go to Luke chapter 18. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on these, uh, these verses, but just look at, yeah, I'll pull it up here. Luke 18, we have uh, Yeshua tells a parable. Uh, in this parable, he talks about a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And this widow who is persistent and kept, uh, kept coming at him seeking justice. Give me justice against my adversary. And, and through sheer persistence, despite the fact that this judge didn't fear God and, and uh, didn't care about this widow, he thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll deal with this situation just because she's bothering me so much. Um, and that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So, uh, you know, this is a call the Homer argument from the light to the heavy. If an unjust judge is able to give justice to a widow who is constantly pestering him, even though he doesn't care, how much more will God, who does care, give justice to his people? But the reason I'm bringing this up in the context of talking about repentance is because this the plea of the persistent widow can be understood as a plea for national justice right this is not just uh, i mean yes this can apply on an individual level as well but i think what yeshua is teaching here is about as a nation repenting and seeking god and seeking his salvation and his justice against the adversary right like uh in other places we've seen the the lord's prayer for example what's the, what are we praying thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? We're asking for God's kingdom to reign on this earth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, this, this, these themes keep coming up over and over again in the gospels that this is what we're supposed to be praying for and seeking for. This is what Yeshua was exhorting his, the, the nation in that time to seek for and to pray for, that they would not have to face this coming judgment. And then Yeshua goes on to tell another parable illustrating the, uh, the, what true repentance is supposed to look like. It's the parable of these two guys praying. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. And the Pharisee is, is standing by himself and praying, you know, I thank you, I'm not like other men, you know, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, for example, uh, and boasts about how I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So he's justifying himself in his prayer, right? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Throughout the Gospels, Yeshua, uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, particularly, that's what we're looking at here. Yeshua keeps... Uh, teaching about what true repentance is supposed to look like. 
And why is that such a big theme for him? Because he wants to avoid the destruction of Jerusalem and he wants to see the kingdom come. All right. So let's go back to Luke chapter 19. <laughs> let's take a look at starting in verse 45. So based on what I've been arguing here is that prior to the triumphal entry or the non-triumphal entry, however we want to look at it, the fate of Jerusalem was not yet sealed. But the lack of reception that Yeshua receives coming into Jerusalem shows him that the nation has not repented and shows him that this judgment is coming and that it is certain. And then Yeshua predicts the destruction of the temple. And then what does he immediately do after that? Right away, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This, um, in all four Gospels, uh, relate this event. This is a significant event. Um, anytime you, all four Gospels share a story, you know it's, it's important. Uh, the other Gospels, uh, the, they narrate it more at length. There's more details added. You, you sh uh, and Luke's uh, version is quite concise. It's uh, abbreviated a bit. Um, some scholars have argued that the, the reason why Yeshua comes in and cleanses the temple is to because he didn't care about it and it was going to be destroyed. I, I have a hard time seeing how you can get that out of this passage, especially in Luke where Yeshua has just been weeping over the temple and the coming destruction of the temple. Uh, in my opinion, the fact that he would bother to drive out the money changers and the people who are selling stuff in the courts of the temple proves that he he had an affection for this place, right? This is, this is something that he cared about. Um, by the way, the last time Yeshua was in the temple in the Gospel of Luke was back in chapter 2 when Yeshua was 12 years old. And what does he talk about? talks about my, the, the things of my father. My father's house is what uh, most translations say. But um, I was suggesting if you go back to that session, I think that was in session 2, we talked about that. The things of my father can have uh, more implications than just a house. Anyway, the point is that Yeshua has respect for this place, for this temple, and that's why he bothers to, to cleanse it. But there is also a sense in which clearing out the money changers and the, the salespeople from the temple is a portent of its destruction, right? Yeshua has just predicted the destruction of the temple, and then this happens. And he quotes two verses here. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, where God says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Um, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. If we scroll down, uh, let's start in verse 9. 
this is, again, this is in the context of Jeremiah predicting the destruction of the temple. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to the place, my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of all the evil of my people Israel. Uh, and he goes on and says that uh, I will do to this house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. He's referring back to what happened in the days of Eli when the tabernacle that was at Shiloh was sacked by the Philistines and that place became a ruin and he's saying that's going to happen to the temple so the fact that Yeshua in Luke chapter 19 he quotes from Jeremiah 7 talking calling this place a den of robbers uh, again he's alluding to the coming destruction All right, there's one more passage I want us to uh, take a look at here in these chapters. And it's again related to the temple. Let's take a look at uh, Luke chapter 19. Or, sorry, not, not 19. We were just there. We're going to go to Luke chapter 21. So this is the passage that uh, we see it paralleled in both Matthew and in Mark and um, and in and then Luke has it as well in Matthew uh, they often refer to it as the Olivet discourse it's where Yeshua has dis predicts the destruction of the temple and the uh, end of the world basically let's take a look at verses five and six. Uh, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he, he predicts, again, the destruction of the temple. And again, it's very clear and vivid that this is what he is predicting. Um, then let's jump down to verse 20. And this, in this place, he describes in more detail the destruction of Jerusalem and what that will look like. Uh, could I get a volunteer to read these verses? Let's read Luke 21, verses 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles 
until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Thank you. All right. Um, I want to just briefly look at some parallels here. So in Mark, this is how it starts. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Uh, Matthew's version is similar. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Look how Luke uh, Luke puts it. It's, a, it's a, quite different, actually. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's, uh, there's a, a lot of debate about when the Gospels were written. Uh, I mentioned in one of the earlier sessions that scholars have the tendency, uh, secular scholars have the tendency to try to date biblical books as late as possible. They'll say, well, you know, the earliest manuscripts or the earliest evidence for it that we have from other sources, you know, people that quoted or whatever, well, that's from you know, say, second century. So that's probably when they wrote these, right? Uh, I, I don't think that's uh, the most valid way to date these documents. Um, I, I think it's quite likely that both Mark and possibly Matthew were written before the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. So, uh, most scholars will agree that the Gospels were written after Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles are the earliest uh, documents from the New Testament that we have. And so the Gospels could have been from maybe the uh, 60s uh, CE, um, at least Matthew, at least Mark and possibly Matthew. Uh, Luke, I have suggested, was written after the destruction of the temple. It's possible that Luke was also written before the destruction of the temple, but there's some reasons why I think it makes a lot of sense that Luke was written just after that event, because I think a lot of the themes Luke brings up and some passages are directly responding to the theological crisis that that event poses for uh, the Jewish people and four followers of Yeshua as well. Uh, if you, if we were to look at the entire eschatological discourse in Mark, which we're not, uh, you'll see that, uh, and, and to a lesser extent, this is the case in Matthew as well, but Mark has the tendency to superimpose the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world on top of each other. It's, you can't really disentangle the two by literary analysis alone. In contrast, Luke, Luke keeps those two events more distinct. And, uh, this, and he makes clear that this abomination of desolation, uh, he doesn't even use, he, he retains the word desolation, but he sees this abomination of desolation as being a reference to the destruction of the temple, 
right? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It goes on. Okay, and then we get to this uh, enigmatic phrase at the end. Uh, it talks about how they'll fall by the sword, be led captive among the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is this? What are the times of the Gentiles here? Um, well, uh, I think a lot of people assume that the times of the Gentiles, this is just, you know, talking about that vague period of time from when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem until Yeshua returns. Uh, Mark Kinzer and other scholars uh, suggest that this is actually talking about the reign of the four empires mentioned in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7. Uh, remember, we looked at these passages a couple weeks ago. Uh, actually, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. Um, Daniel 2.21. This is talking about uh, God, it, he says, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So, times and seasons in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uses the, the word uh, keros and chronos. So, times, kerus, and seasons chronus these terms come up in luke acts in some significant places so one of them is of course what we're looking at here the times of the gentiles that's that word um this is the word keru keros uh times uh take a quick look at acts 1 6 the disciples say, uh, they come together and they ask Yeshua, this is after uh, Yeshua's resurrection, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So there's this sense that there's um, these successive kingdoms that have allotted times and seasons for them that God designates. God's the one who decides when their time is up. Right. So what these scholars are suggesting is that when Luke is talking about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, the times of the Gentiles is referring to these four empires, Babylon, Persia, Media, or Medo-Persia, um, Greece and Rome. Right. That's prophesied in Daniel and uh, in other places. Uh, we see that coming up. Right. So. The times of the Gentiles began when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BCE. And it will, they will end when the fourth empire, which is Rome, is finally destroyed. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 CE merely extends this times of the Gentiles and intensifies the exile that began back with the Babylonian invasion six centuries earlier. The times of the Gentiles being fulfilled is when Rome, that final Gentile empire dominating Israel, is destroyed. But this, this also implies that Jerusalem will be restored 
after that point, right? Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until that point. After that point is when it will be restored. So here, even in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem being predicted, we have a glimmer of hope for Jerusalem's restoration. Okay, let's wrap up here. Um, so just to kind of sum up some of the things we, I know there's a lot of loose threads we were looking at today. These passages that we've looked at anticipate Jerusalem's destruction. They anticipate the temple's destruction, but there are also hints of its restoration. Going back to Luke 13, Yeshua said, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we argued, this is talking about the return of the Lord to Zion, uh, which means that seeing me refers to enjoying God's presence in the temple. So God's presence will finally be in the temple again when the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they acknowledge Yeshua as king. And by the way, that's a quote from Psalm 118.26, right? I want to read the whole verse because this is significant related to the temple. Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That verse itself implies the restoration of the temple. Um, so, in other words, this, this whole thing is a promise that the temple will one day be rebuilt. I know... A lot of Christian scholars have not come to that conclusion, but I, I think it's clear when you put these pieces together that Luke anticipates that one day the temple will be rebuilt and Jerusalem will be restored. If we take Luke 13, 35, which says, you will not see me until you say, until you welcome Messiah, right? Uh, pair that with Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Um, let's just open that up quick. This is in Peter's sermon. He says, repent therefore and turn back. He's talking to Israel. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which the God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, putting these two passages together, it becomes clear that Israel's repentance and acceptance of Yeshua is the necessary con condition for Yeshua's return and Israel's restoration. Israel's rejection of Yeshua at his first coming was only temporary and will be rectified in the future. God has not forsaken his people, but patiently waits for the day when they will turn back to him. So Israel's rejection of the kingdom at the first coming delayed the coming of that kingdom, but that kingdom is still coming. God's promises will still be fulfilled. What we see in the first two chapters of Luke, these promises of restoration, this anticipation of, of the downfall of Israel's enemies and the ultimate restoration under King Messiah, that is still to come. These promises have not been uh, forsaken. So, the triumphal entry or non-triumphal entry is a 
foreshadowing of what is yet to come, right? If we, at the beginning of Acts, when Yeshua ascends to heaven, uh, it specifies, the angels say, Yeshua will return as he left. Just like when the divine presence left Jerusalem, it returned in exactly the same way from the Mount of Olives. So Yeshua left from the Mount of Olives and he will return back to the Mount of Olives so that he can reenact his entrance into Jerusalem. Only this time, the city and all the people, including its leaders, will receive him as king. And for that day, we eagerly wait. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.